Welcome to Not Your Ordinary Parts, a podcast where we talk about hard things associated with the human experience with the goal of increasing awareness, growth, and healing. You may hear information from professionally licensed therapists, life coaches, healers, doctors, etc. This information is not medical advice or therapy and is not meant to replace actual therapy or instructions given by a doctor or a personal therapist. I'm your host, Jalan Johnson. My guest today is Melissa Urban. Melissa is the co-founder and CEO of Whole30 and an authority on helping people create lifelong healthy habits. She is a seven-time New York Times bestselling author, including the instant bestseller of the book of Boundaries, debuting at number three. She's been featured on the New York, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, People, Forbes, Good Morning America, and CNBC, is the host of the Do The Thing podcast, and is a prominent keynote speaker on Boundaries, building community, health trends, and entrepreneurship. So, Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being my guest. Hi, Jalan. It's really nice to meet you. I'm happy to be here. Likewise. Um, and also, I gave a, a bit of an introduction, but just so that the audience can get to know you a little bit better, do you mind telling your story on how you got to who and where you are today? Yeah, I mean, boy, that's it's a long story. Um, most people who know me know me best as the co-founder and CEO of Whole30, which is a really popular kind of dietary self-experiment that I co-founded in 2009. But, and when people kind of, I think, know me through there, they often will say, oh, have you always been healthy? Have you always been into healthy eating and fitness? And the answer is no. You know, my story really starts with drug addiction. I was a drug addict for five years in my 20s. And it wasn't until I went to rehab for the second time after a relapse that I decided to kind of reinvent myself and change everything about my life. I started going to the gym. I started paying attention to what I ate. I made new friends. I changed my clothes. I changed the music I listened to. I really adopted what I now know is a growth mindset and set a lot of boundaries around my recovery. And that led me to my interest in health and fitness, which led me to a two-person self-experiment in 2009 that was to become what is now the whole 30 and you know all of my books and my boundary practice but yes i had kind of an inauspicious start i would say nice well thank you so much for that and also um your story is so so inspiring and it was something that you said that i loved and you said um i wholeheartedly agree um that sometimes all it takes to inspire change is someone willing to get vulnerable and speak their truth unapolog unapologetically and and that's exactly what you did. So thank you for that, because you're, like I said, you're super inspiring. Thank you. Okay, so to kind of get the interview started, I wanted to start off with a few questions. Um, and first of all, I wanted to ask you about Whole30. What is Whole30? Yes, that's a great question. So often we I dive into these interviews and we never actually talk about what the program is and I don't wanna leave anybody behind. So the Whole30 is not a weight loss diet. It's not a cleanse, it's not a detox, it's not a quick fix. I describe it as a 30 day self experiment designed to help people figure out the foods that work best for them. So the program is based on the framework of an elimination diet, which has been around since the 1920s and many medical doctors still consider it the gold standard for identifying food sensitivities. On the program, you will eliminate foods for 30 days that are commonly problematic to varying degrees across a broad range of people. We are gonna pull these foods out to see how the absence of these foods 
might impact your energy, your sleep, your mood, digestion, cravings, aches and pains, skin, migraines, asthma, allergies, all of these things can be impacted by the food you eat, even the things you may have been told were healthy. So we pull them out, see what happens to all of those things in the absence of those foods. And at the end of the 30 days, you'll reintroduce those foods one at a time, very carefully and systematically, like a scientific experiment, and compare your results. So what the Whole30 does is it really gives you a blueprint for how these foods work in your unique body, and then lets you decide for yourself going forward when or how often or how many of these foods to include in your diet in a way that still feels delicious and maybe represents your culture or your family or the season, but still keeps you feeling your best. Wow. Um, so I guess another question would be, is Whole30 just about food? Oh, what a, what a, it sounds like a simple question, but it's actually quite a deep question because food is never just about food. And I often say that the Whole30 is about food, but it's about so much more than food. We really focus on helping people change their health, habits, and relationship with food. And those things are so closely intertwined. So although the rules of the Whole30 talk about the foods that you're going to eliminate and the foods that you'll add back in and what the schedule looks like and on which days... The support that we offer goes so far beyond that because what I have discovered and through my own Whole30 experience, we lean on food for comfort, to relieve anxiety, to self-soothe, to show ourselves love. Sometimes food is the only way we have to communicate with people in our lives. And so we develop these really complex relationships with these foods, sometimes in ways that are not serving our highest good or in ways that feel good to us. So a lot of the support that we provide around Whole30 talks about mindset shifts away from that really unhealthy weight loss diet culture. We talk about finding other ways to relieve anxiety and self-soothe and show yourself love and communicate with others. So there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes of this 30-day dietary experiment, which is why when people come out of it, they report results that are so much greater than just, oh, my energy is better or I'm sleeping more. It really is a radical transformation in every area of their life. Wow. Um, it, it sounds like it for sure is more about more than just food. It sounds like it's something for the whole body and mind and spirit, too. Yeah, um, it, it really is. So because you started on your journey um, your your transformative journey. What was it that you would say that changed when you were actually willing to get really vulnerable? I didn't talk about my recovery until a few, maybe two years into talking about the Whole30. So I had been writing about it, leading people through the program, traveling to do workshops about the Whole30, standing up in front of hundreds of people in a CrossFit gym to talk about the power of food. And when it came to the part where I talked about our emotional relationship with food and the cycle that we can get stuck in with food, where we crave and overconsume, and the guilt and the shame that that brings and the isolation that that brings and the stress that that causes and the way we go right back to the thing that we hate ourselves for doing for comfort or reward, and that cycle continues, I would stand up and talk about that. And people would look at me and they would say, you are a thin, fit, able-bodied woman. What do you possibly have to know about this cycle? And so I realized that I was going to have to talk about my recovery and my addiction because 
I understand what it's like to be stuck in that cycle. And when it comes to that cycle, food and drugs are not that different. So I wrote an article, a blog post about it. And I was just so scared. I was so scared that people would look at me differently, that I would lose credibility, that people would, you know, maybe recognize the worthless, useless drug addict that the voice in my head still occasionally told me that I was. And I pushed, you know, publish. And the response, of course, was so warm and supportive. And of course it was. But more than that, I recognized that it felt really good to just give up that baggage to say, I will not feel shame about who I was and what I did. And because I will not carry this shame, I am going to drag it into the light. And that felt so good that it kind of made me want to go, okay, well, where else can I do this? Where else can I open up and show up as me and just say like, no, I'm not going to carry shame for this. Wow. That's so powerful. Um, and I, I think a lot of us don't really understand the dynamic that our emotions can have on our relationship with food or, or anything that we use to, to comfort. And a lot of times that stems from traumatic events in our lives. Um, and, and I think that more and more trauma is being highlighted nowadays because everybody's talking about it and there, there seems to be a, a shift toward healing. Um, so what I wanted to do is, is ask you, how would you define trauma and what impact did it have on your life? Oh, you know, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, so I would probably leave the definition to someone with a bit more street cred in that area. But, you know, I, the reason I started using in the first place was because at the age of 16, I was sexually abused by someone I was really close with. And I feel like at that point in my life, my, it was like a record scratch who I was before that event. And then who I became immediately after it was night and day. I noticed everybody in my life noticed. Nobody knew what was wrong with me. And it left a real imprint on me. That's the word that my therapist uses, imprint. It imprinted upon my brain, you know, the way that I thought about myself, the way that I thought about my body, the way that I thought about love and how you show each other love and sexuality. It was a real bear to unpack. And to be honest, I'm still unpacking pieces of it. So, you know, I think it's really important not to try to compare trauma. I think it's really important to try not to minimize my own because other people have been through worse experiences. You know, that I don't think that that's helpful or or serving. I think what is important or what was important for me in my recovery that second time was to say, this is why I started using in the first place. And until I actually like open the lid and I'm willing to take a look at this, this time with the support that I deserve, the language, that I can learn the, the tools I can use to start to process what happened and move on from it until I do that, I'm going to be carrying this forever. And that was ultimately, you know, the act that helped me and has helped me maintain my recovery for the last 23 years. Wow. Um, so I think that, and, and maybe you'll agree a lot of times when we have these traumatic moments or traumatic incidents in our lives, we, we tend to lean toward using substances. But in your opinion, would you say that the substances are the issue or like in your case, is it, is it, and can it be something much deeper? You know, I started using drugs to escape from the trauma, which was a real problem. My trauma was a real problem in my life. And then my drug addiction became another layer of really serious life-threatening problem on top of the trauma. So I absolutely think that the things that we use to cope can become in and of themselves 
like an issue or a problem on top of the motivations to cope in that method, you know, from the first place. I don't think it always is like that, but I think it's very common. And when it comes to something like, you know, I used drugs, I used heroin, I used ecstasy, I used prescription medication, but you can't walk into a 7-Eleven or a grocery store and pick those things up. And to be honest, I'm kind of grateful that I wasn't addicted to alcohol because that's so much more accessible. And when we talk about food as a coping mechanism, now we're talking about something that is not only incredibly accessible, but has been marketed to us as a coping mechanism, sometimes as the coping mechanism, right? Like, can you even parent without wine? Mom wine culture is out of hand. Can you break up with a partner without a tub of ice cream? And the fact that food scientists have designed these foods to make us crave and overconsume, and they are nutrient poor and calorie dense and super normally stimulating. I think now we have this perfect storm of the thing that we're using to cope is encouraged and is making us feel as though we can't get out of the cycle of overconsuming it. And that can have its own physical or psychological or emotional consequences on top of why we are using food in this way in the first place. I, I love that you are so open about your experiences and the things that you went through, because I think as a culture and, and as a society, we have been trained to feel shame around things that we do wrong or, you know, something in our past that may not be so pretty. Right. But you being who you are, um, the, the amount of notoriety that you have and the platform that you have to be able to just openly talk about the things that you had to do and the things that you went through is incredible. Um, and I automatically just feel like, oh my goodness, did she just say that? Because I'm so used to it. Right. Yeah. But I think the vulnerability and the courage that you have to, to be able to just say, this is what it was. And, and this is who I am now is really going to be, uh, and has been helpful for so many people. So, um, I just, I wanted to, to mention that and, and to say thank you for, for being so open about it. Thank you. I appreciate that. So your journey with therapy, um, how, how have you benefited from therapy and, and was it easy to start your journey with therapy? I will never stop talking about my love for therapy. I will never stop talking about it. I used the word therapy 66 times in the book of boundaries. I counted and I have been in therapy basically my entire life. Um, the first time I really dove into therapy was in rehab and the therapist that was randomly assigned to me in rehab ended up being the perfect fit. This person was just so skilled and right for my personality. I was very used to manipulate. I mean, I was a drug addict. I was used to manipulating people, getting what I wanted, hiding the truth, keeping people at arm's distance. And he was not afraid to call me on my BS, which was exactly what I needed. And I ended up going on to work with him for the better part of like two or three decades, two and a half decades, long after I was out of rehab. But I'm still in therapy to this day. I think that therapy is of benefit even when there's nothing wrong. I think it's so helpful to establish a relationship with a therapist if you are able, because I recognize that there's privilege associated with that, but if you are able before you're in a moment of crisis so that you can establish that relationship and 
they can get to know you and you can get to know them so that if and when something does happen and like the crap hits the fan, you have this established relationship. But I'm in therapy and I will talk about things related to my trauma, my addiction, my relationships. You know, I'm doing a big reparenting journey right now where I'm kind of talking to 16 year old Melissa, where I feel like for a very long time I was stuck at that age because of my trauma and I'm kind of helping her move along. But then I, I also find it important for myself to take breaks from therapy because I can't work on myself 24 seven, 365. It's exhausting. And I also want to be able to test drive what I'm learning in therapy in the real world. So I will feel like I get to a point in therapy where I'm like, okay, I've learned some great skills, some new co coping mechanisms. I feel really solid. I'm going to take a break for a couple months and I am going to practice this on my own. So the next time conflict comes up or the next time I find myself feeling triggered, I'm going to apply what I've learned and really road test it. And then inevitably, you know, a couple months later, six months later, something will come up and I'll say, I think it's time to get back to therapy and explore it and I'll go back in. But that's my journey in my relationship. And I will always encourage people if you are able in whatever capacity to talk to a trained counselor, a trained therapist, a support group, somebody who's just dedicated to being there to support you with the knowledge and insight that you don't have access to. That was, um, there's something that you said about, well, number one, having a therapist on your, you know, the first therapist that you are partnered up with and it being a good fit, because that's not something that happens often. Mm -mm. So for individuals that, that are able to have that, I think that that is really a gift. Um, also, you said that you take breaks from therapy, which is something that I thought was weird when I was doing it, because I would say to my therapist, okay, I feel like you've given me a new pair of shoes and I want to go out into the world and break them in and yeah. see how I feel. So that was something that I, I also had that experience of. And it, and it helps you because now that you gain these new tools, you use them. And when you use them and you have a different response and, you know, maybe you're triggered, but you have a new tool to help you with that trigger, it gives you a lot more insight and it, and it helps you to continue to heal. So I like that you mentioned that as well. I love the new shoes analogy. I like that. <laughs> Um, okay. So something that you are well-versed in and have written about is boundaries. So I wanted to, to speak a little bit about that. What are boundaries? Oh, boundaries, my favorite subject right now. I think there's a lot of misconception about boundaries. And I think the very word, when you just say the word boundaries, it makes people feel like, uh, like, uh, no, like icky. And I think that's because people think boundaries are mean or selfish or controlling. There is a common misconception that boundaries are like telling other people what to do. And the good news is that could not be farther from the truth. Boundaries don't tell other people what to do. They tell other people the actions that you are willing to take to keep yourself safe and healthy. So I describe a boundary like setting a limit around how you allow other people to engage with you. And boundaries are really the key to relieving anxiety, resentment, frustration, anger. They bring a ton of freedom and trust and respect and openness into your environment and your relationship. And they are really designed to improve relationships. Boundaries make relationships better. Mm, that was a great explanation. Okay, so let me ask you this. Is there a difference between a boundary and a request? 
I like this discussion. This is nuanced. So let's use an example here. Let's tell a story. Imagine that your mom is always talking about the food that's on your plate, commenting on your body, commenting on your weight, and you really don't like it. It's not good for your mental health. It's not good for your relationship with food. You're trying to unlearn unhealthy diet patterns, but you've never said anything to your mom, right? You've you've maybe rolled your eyes. You've maybe hinted or avoided the question, but you've never said anything outright. The kindest thing to do is to share your boundary with her, with your mom clearly and kindly, but we're not going to like go in like a wrecking ball the first time we want to share this limit, right? If you sit down at lunch and your mom says, oh, are you going to eat all that? And you slam your fork down and you walk out the door and you say, I won't listen to this. And you slam it hard in her face. She's not going to know what happened. That is technically a boundary, but we're not sharing it in a kind way that's going to improve the relationship. So Usually, the first time you express a boundary, it is in the form of a request to say, hey, I've got this limit. You probably didn't know I had it. I'm going to share this with you now and invite you to meet me in it. So it might sound like, hey, mom, I've noticed that when you comment on my food or my body, it makes me really uncomfortable and it pulls me out of the really nice time that we're having at lunch. So I'd like to ask that we not talk about our food or our bodies um, when we get together. Is that, Can you agree to that? So yes, it's a request. Yes, you are asking her to meet you in this limit, but that's a very kind and gentle entry-level boundary to set. If she proves unwilling or incapable of respecting it, and she said, keeps talking about your body, keeps commenting on it, even when you remind her on it, then eventually you are going to need to take some action to protect your mental health, whether it is not having lunch with your mom anymore, taking a break from the relationship, but that's down the road. We want to share our boundaries, usually in the form of a request, very clearly and kindly, assuming that our conversation partner just didn't know we had that limit and wants to respect it because they love us and care about us. Wow. That was a, a wonderful explanation and also the illustration that you gave. Um, so let me ask you this. Let's say you do set a boundary and it causes a conflict. Is that a sign that the boundary is wrong? Not necessarily. What a good question. Not necessarily. Sometimes when people are very used to overrunning your limits and getting their way, when you set a boundary, it can feel like you're taking something away from them. When all you're really doing is revoking a privilege they were never meant to have in the first place. But it can feel like you're taking something away so they may react defensively or poorly. So, you know, your sister is always bringing her dog over when you invite her over for dinner, even though you don't like dogs and the dog is not very well behaved and your kid is allergic. And mm -hmm. you've allowed this behavior because you just like don't want to put up with it. But every time your sister comes over for dinner, you're resentful, you're angry, you're snippy, you're short, you yell at the dog, your kid gets upset. So finally you say to your sister, hey, we'd love to have you over for dinner. You have to leave the dog at home, please. Um, we can't have the dog in the house or bring the dog, but we're going to leave the dog in the backyard your sister can get really upset. I don't understand. The dog used to be okay. Why are you punishing me like this? It doesn't mean that your boundary is wrong. It just means that they're having some feelings about it. And the good news is they don't have to understand or agree with your boundary in order to respect it. Your sister might not be happy about it, but in the interest of having a peaceful family dinner that makes everybody happy, she can say, kind of a bummer, but I get it. I'll bring the dog and we'll just leave the dog in the backyard. He'll be fine. Okay. 
Um, I get that. And I, and I understand that emphatically. And I would say that if someone has some feelings about your boundaries, they can, they're allowed to have feelings about it, Mm -hmm. but their feelings don't necessarily mean that you have to compromise your boundaries, even if it doesn't feel right. Um, Now, something someone may say is you're being selfish. So are boundaries selfish? So first of all, the point that you just made is excellent. Not only they are allowed to have feelings, absolutely. But not only do you not have to compromise your boundary because they're having feelings, their feelings are also not your responsibility. It is not your responsibility or your job to manage their feelings about your healthy boundary, especially because you can see the ways that respecting this boundary improves the relationship and improves the dynamic. So that's the first thing I want to say, which is fantastic. Wait, remind me of the, your second part. I just <laughs> I lost it. Our boundary selfish. If, oh. if someone feels like what yeah. you're doing, you know, is too much for them and they say it's selfish, our boundary selfish. I mean, I think we have to unpack the word selfish for a minute because we have been conditioned, and I will say especially women, especially moms, that even having needs or feelings is selfish, right? I am supposed to, as the mother of a 10-year-old, put everyone else's needs and feelings above my own. And if I don't, I'm labeled selfish. So there's a little bit of unpacking to do there. However, boundaries, a true healthy boundary is not selfish because it I can demonstrate the ways in which this boundary will improve our relationship. When you bring your dog into the house after I've asked you not to, my kid gets allergies and gets upset and can't hang out with us. I find myself being resentful and short with you and snippy, and that affects our relationship and the way that our entire dinner goes. It has an effect on everyone at the dinner table. I want you to be in my life. I want you to come over for dinner and for us to have a wonderful, relaxed visit And in order to do that, I need you to leave the dog at home or put the dog in the backyard. It is not selfish because it is designed to keep that person in your life in a way that works for both of you. I like that because a lot of times we think with family, you know, blood is thicker than water or, you know, there really are no bounds or, or anything that you shouldn't do for family, regardless of how it makes you feel. Um, so what I wanted to ask next is how are boundaries and self-love related? I think boundaries are an act of self-love. We have to, in order to even, before we set the boundary, we have to know we need a boundary. And before we can even know that we need a boundary, we have to be checking in with ourselves to say, how do I feel? What do I need? And all too often, we don't do that at all. We go through our entire day feeling and being reactive to everyone else's needs and expectations. When we take moments to check in with ourselves to say, what do I need? How do I feel? Should I say yes to this? Should I say no to this? Can I actually do this without resentment? Do I have capacity? Do I have the energy When we do that, that is a micro act of self-love. What you are affirming is, I am worthy of having needs. I'm worthy of having those needs met. My needs are not selfish. My feelings are not selfish. And that, I think, in and of itself demonstrates self-love. And then when you act on it and you advocate for yourself, you send a very powerful message 
to your spirit, to your brain, to your body. I am worth taking care of myself. I am capable of taking care of myself. There are actions that I can take to keep myself safe and healthy and improve my mental health and my physical health. So I think all of those are wrapped up together and setting and holding boundaries is an act of self-care and self-love. Wow. Um, I, I love the way you describe that. And I, and I think that a lot of people would hear that and it would align with how they want to feel. But I think that a lot of times in, in healthy family or, or unhealthy family systems, we just don't know how to advocate for ourselves. Or if we've tried before, it, we may get pushed back and then think that it's you know something wrong or that we're betraying the, the family or we're betraying our friends or what have you. But also, if we if we don't advocate for ourselves at a certain point, we may start to suffer from it. So how would it look? to live a life unboundaried. You mean without any boundaries at all? Right. Oh. Or, or just, to, or boundaries that, you know, you, you try and set and then you get pushed back and you, you let it, you know, yeah. you throw that boundary away or you, you say, I don't want to do this anymore because it's causing conflict or people are getting upset about it. I guarantee that every single person listening knows what it feels like to live a life without healthy boundaries. We are exhausted. We are burned out. We don't have time. We don't have energy. We are walking around feeling resentful. We are so anxious because we never know what we're going to do next. It is entirely up to other people to dictate how we act and what we say and when and where we show up. We are carrying around these grudges. We're avoiding certain people. We are, you know, mad that people aren't reading our minds. Can't you see how negatively this affects me and how upset I am and how tired I am and how I don't have time for this, but we don't say anything. And so those cycles just persist and it ends up, it is like a toxic destroyer of relationships because now we are resentful. We do things begrudgingly. When we do engage with people, we're short. We avoid certain people. We hold them at a distance and, and we aren't open. We don't have the trust. We don't have that level of respect. We don't have clear communication. So everyone is always guessing what people really mean and what they really need, which is also exhausting. That's what it feels like. And I guarantee so many people feel like that right now. Mm -hmm. I think that could lead to a, a dysregulated nervous system. And then when you combine that with unhealthy foods. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It is, you know, you're losing sleep, you're anxious. So stress levels are up. A primary coping mechanism for lack of sleep and those stress levels is food or alcohol, which can lead to more isolation. Yeah. I mean, it's a really, it can beget all of these other negative feelings and behaviors and physiological and psychological health consequences. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Okay. So, so how can someone manage feelings of shame or guilt that are associated with how other people feel about them setting healthy boundaries once they get to a point where they realize that, that they're necessary? Um, one of the things I talk about when it comes to boundaries and guilt is the psychological principles of guilt. So again, I'm not a therapist, but 
as a society and from an evolutionary and biological perspective, the emotion of guilt has a purpose. When we do something wrong that legitimately harms someone else, guilt is a very healthy and helpful motivator to help us say, ooh, that didn't feel good. I harmed my community. I harmed, I harmed my family. I harmed my tribe. I don't want to do that again. When it comes to setting and holding boundaries, however, this is what psychologists call unearned guilt. We have not done anything wrong by saying to our sister, please don't bring the dog over. We do not enjoy its company. My kid's allergic. We haven't done anything wrong, but we feel guilty anyway, in part because of the way that society has taught us, and again, especially women, especially moms, to be small, to be compliant, to not have needs, to not speak up, in part because the other person wants us to feel guilty. Because if they can make us feel guilty enough, we will drop this inconvenient for them boundary altogether, and then they just get to go on living their life as usual. So I think the way to combat it is to remind yourself, I have not done anything wrong. This is a healthy boundary designed to improve the relationship and keep myself safe and healthy. I can demonstrate the ways in which this boundary would improve our relationship. And even if they don't understand or agree with it, this is what is necessary for me to ensure my own physical and mental health and safety. Mm. I think that was a perfect answer. Um, and, and I know you've mentioned a few times that you're not a therapist or a psychologist, but I do think that you have enough experience um, and expertise for your opinion to hold weight. So I just wanted to say, I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. So if you could use your platform to help or encourage someone who's struggling or on the fence with the idea of getting healthy, whether it be um, with setting boundaries or changing their diet, just anything to, to improve their overall condition when it comes to their emotional health or physical health, what would you say? people ask me all the time, like, where should I start? Right. I obviously talk a lot about food. I talk a lot about fitness. I talk about meditation. I talk about therapy. I talk about boundaries. I talk about cold showers and walking and, you know, all of these different practices. And people will say to me, like, where should I start? It does not, it literally doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where you start, pick something. Maybe you pick the thing that feels like it's going to have the biggest impact. Um, the Whole30 is incredibly impactful for the vast majority of people who complete it. It's so well supported. There are so many free resources available. Maybe you start there. Maybe that feels really intimidating, but you're like, I could, I could read a book on boundaries and start saying no once in a while. Great. Do that. Maybe you start with flossing your teeth because only a healthy person with healthy habits would floss their teeth every single night. That's true. So you buy some floss, you leave it out, you commit to flossing your teeth every single night. It doesn't matter where you start. What you need is to make a promise to yourself and keep that promise to yourself. And I want that promise to be so small, you can't help but keep it. So small, so attainable. And all you need to do is just show up for it. So if you start there, what will naturally happen is you will continue to remind yourself, okay, I'm a healthy person with healthy habits. I'm drinking my water every morning. I'm flossing my teeth. I'm taking the stairs. I'm, I signed up for the whole 30 and you will continue to look for evidence 
that you are a healthy person with healthy habits. So now all of a sudden you're seeing all of these cues and making all of these decisions that support that, which will naturally lead you to say, what else can I do? And that will happen with time. It really will. But start somewhere, pick one thing. It doesn't matter what it is. And just commit to doing that thing consistently in such a small way that you can't help but win. Hmm. That was awesome. Um, and something as small as just flossing. Um, I think that what you mentioned about just establishing a healthy habit is a start or, or a great starting point. So thank you for that. Yes, it is. I think people often think about in order to start a healthy habit, I have to be motivated. How do I get motivated? And like, mm. you don't, you don't need to be motivated. You won't be motivated. What you do need to do is figure out how to show up. And so that's kind of, I talk about that quite a bit. Chase consistency, not motivation and figure out how to keep showing up for yourself like that in just small ways. Right. Because I mean, if you think about it from that aspect, look how many people are motivated every, um, every time there's a new year to go to the mm -hmm. gym and get healthy. And two weeks later, mm -hmm. you know, they're burnt out and it's because they're relying on something that may not really be what they need. It's just, okay, well, every year around this time, we're supposed to do this. Yeah. So I think that focusing on something small that is beneficial in a personal way is a great start too. Yes. So. There's a book called Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. Um, he is a professor and a habit researcher, and I highly recommend that book for anyone looking to start or even stop a habit. It's really, really good. Well, Melissa, I want to say thank you. This has been so wonderful. Um, so honored to have you as a guest. Um, if people wanted to, to find you online or on social media, where can they find you? Yeah, I am everywhere just at Melissa U. So Instagram is Melissa U. My website is MelissaU.com. I'm on TikTok at Melissa underscore U. And you can find all things Whole30 at Whole30. Okay. And then what about the books? Oh, yeah. I have, all, of course, um, I think eight, seven now Whole30 books. So if you're interested in doing the Whole30 program, the program itself is free. You can go to the Whole30 website, Whole30.com read about the program, get the program rules, do the program. You don't have to buy anything. We always want to make sure the program is accessible, but we do have a variety of Whole30 books that will help you plan and prepare for your program. We've got a daily journal. There's a ton of cookbooks that will provide you with recipes. There's a book called Food Freedom Forever for what to do after your Whole30. And then my latest book, The Book of Boundaries, is out literally anywhere. Anywhere you can find books. I think it's being published in, I don't know, 15 different languages right now. Great. Okay. Well, again, Melissa, I want to thank you so much for your time, for what you do, the way you do it, and for who you are. Thanks so much, Jalan. This was a great conversation.